I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. I knew that his preoccupation with the safety of the hostages would lead him to start this process up again. And... It was with doubt, in fact, high prospect of it being renewed that I nonetheless tabled my resignation and left. And I shouldn't have done it. I, I consider that I failed our country in retiring at that point. The only person that could have stopped it was me. And I, I didn't do it. That was Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, Robert McFarlane, speaking in a fascinating new podcast called Fiasco. The operation he's talking about, the one he says he could have stopped but didn't, was the sale of weapons to Iran in an effort to free American hostages. It was a wild scheme, sanctioned at the highest levels of the White House, involving shady arms dealers and international fixers that ended in disaster, forming one half of a years-long scandal known as the Iran-Contra Affair. Although the details are barely remembered today, Iran-Contra was, as many critics saw it, an epic abuse of power by a White House that skirted the law and conducted a secret foreign policy in defiance of Congress. It is a tale that has more than a few echoes to events today, and it's vividly recreated in Fiasco. We'll talk to the host of Fiasco, Leon Nafok, and ask him why Iran-Contra matters more than ever right now on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, throughout the many months of us talking about Trump and Ukraine and impeachment, I think we've made a number of references to Iran-Contra as an earlier abuse of power by a White House and also as a case of misconduct that was being investigated by Congress in ways that are quite different than we've seen play out over the past year. But I dare say most people, most of our listeners, probably have a hard time reconstructing what Iran-Contra actually was and why people were so worked up about it at the time, which I think is the real benefit of this fiasco podcast. Absolutely. And even for me, and and probably you too, I mean, this was a formative kind of scandal for me. I was uh, just getting into journalism. In fact, I even worked 
for one of the uh, kind of bit players who was involved in this uh, scandal, which we'll get into with, uh, with Leon. Who, who was that? Uh, let's uh, by uh, the let's way. save it. Let's we'll save it for the we'll little suspense for the podcast. For the, podcast. Yeah. Uh, the but, Iran uh, contra, contra figure who Clydeman worked yeah. for. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, I mean yeah. the echoes uh, was it are Bonifar, really... by the way? Yeah. Uh, just uh, well, uh, <laughs> were you one, on his payroll? <laughs> one person removed from Gorbanifar, <laughs> but all those names. I mean, God, what a trip down memory lane, Gorbanifar. And, you but know, but Farland yeah. and, and, you know, all these interesting characters and the, the echoes are fascinating. The comparisons and the things that are actually different are also instructive as well. So I'm really psyched to talk about this. It's a great podcast. Well, we have our expert right here. Uh, Leon, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what prompted you to want to tell the story of Iran-Contra right now? So uh, we actually decided to do it, I guess, more than a year ago at this point. Our producer, Andrew Parsons, and I had worked at Slate, where we made the show Slow Burn. We'd covered the Watergate scandal and the Clinton impeachment in two seasons. Michael, uh, you, you remember being interviewed uh, for the second I season? well do, yes. <laughs> and then we left Slate and started our own operation. Uh, and now we make the new show called Fiasco for Luminary, a subscription platform. And we you know, were thinking about what our first couple seasons would be, and, and Iran-Contra was the top of the list because it just seemed like the other big 20th century presidential scandal that we hadn't covered. Even to me, who didn't know, honestly, the first thing about it when we made the decision to undertake it, it was clear that it was, as you say, like a somewhat forgotten chapter in American history for reasons that I didn't totally understand, and I'm still kind of puzzling through. Why did this, as you say, like massive spectacle that everyone was obsessed with for like five minutes in 1987 sort of fade away. Well, uh, you know, we, it was more than five minutes, though. I mean, Lawrence Walsh's investigation <laughs> yes, went that was longer on than five minutes. for years, <laughs> uh, you know, right up to the uh, 1992, I believe. Past when, it, past uh, it. Yeah, yeah the litigation, because I remember yeah. when I started, uh, you know, our first real job as a reporter at Legal Times in Washington, yeah. D.C., the big story at the time, other than George H.W. Uh, Bush's election, was all these appeals court cases, you know, and ultimately, and not to give away the story, but, you know, a lot of these Iran-Contra figures were able to battle back in court mm -hmm. because of things like limited use immunity. Remember that, Isikoff? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's a step down from blanket to absolute yeah. immunity. But uh, um, so let's sort of unpack the story. And it was interesting the way you did it, because I think most of us think it would start with Iran and then go to the Contras, but you actually started with the invasion of Grenada, yep. uh, which was not something I immediately understood. But tell us why you started there and the fascinating character who you centered your first episode around. Yeah. So so we uh, early on saw this interview that Oliver North did, I believe, in 1971. So before he was any kind of household name long before that. Uh, he appeared on Firing Line and was brought on to talk about war crimes in Vietnam. He had actually written a letter to Buckley saying, you know, William the, F. Buckley, sorry, the yeah. host of F Firing Line. Yeah. And North and two of two of his fellow veterans had, had written a letter saying, like, there's all this reporting, all this talk now about war crimes and atrocities. We want to come on and correct the record and, and, and clear the air about what this what what's going on. And it made clear that Vietnam, like, was an absolutely formative part of Oliver North's 
life and worldview. And what we learned as we read more about him and, and, and kind of what he did after that interview, we realized that the failure in Vietnam, the defeat in Vietnam, our, our decision to pull out of Vietnam had really stuck with him as like a motivating force. He felt as though we had abandoned our allies, our anti-communist allies, and he never wanted to see that happen again. And he brought that into the White House with him when he joined the National Security Council staff. And at, by that point, which was in 1981, there was this great hangover from Vietnam where no one wanted to see any more foreign intervention. No one wanted these adventures to be undertaken in America's name. For North, that was a real limitation because he felt like that, you know, that, that was the wrong lesson to take from, from Vietnam. And the invasion of Grenada, which followed a communist coup in Managua, presented an opportunity to sort of demonstrate after all these years of wallowing in Vietnam that America could still get out there and put down communist government and exercise the ghosts of, of Vietnam. And, yeah. and, and I didn't realize this, but it was the first real combat action since Vietnam. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it was the first like, quote unquote, successful ouster of a communist government the U.S. But had undertaken. 18 American service members died in that. I, I did not remember that. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a, not an insignificant number for a tiny little island yeah. that had really no real ability to fight back. Yeah. And the guy who you center this story around, Kevin Kotke. Katke, yeah. Katke, okay. <laughs> Tell us about who he was and what his role was. So Kevin Katke was nobody. He was a, a maintenance engineer at Macy's uh, in Bayshore on Long Island. He was a dad. He had a used car lot that he used to, to, to pick up some money on the side. And he loved foreign policy. He was really engaged with the cause of anti-communism. He considered himself a, a patriot. He believed that uh, the U.S. government could use the help of someone like him, who who is sort of a, a self-directed freelancer, who could go to places like Jamaica and talk to dissidents in Jamaica and then bring back intelligence about the socialist government in Jamaica. He and a couple friends were kind of doing these sorts of things on their own time when Kevin could get time off from Macy's. And they would come back and try to sort of brief people in the CIA about what they'd learned. And no one obviously really cared what they thought, except at a certain point after Jamaica uh, elected a right-wing prime minister and sort of no longer needed uh, any of Kevin Katke's assistance, he changed his focus to Grenada, which had become socialist government in 1979 and had brought a bunch of exiles to New York. All these Grenadians who, who didn't support the socialist government came to New York. And Kevin Katke started kind of cultivating them as, as sources, as friends. And he ended up bringing one of them down to Washington as sort of a possible figurehead for an exile movement. This guy named Michael Sylvester, who was a lawyer who came to New York from Grenada. Kevin Katke had sort of taken him under his wing. He let him live on a boat in the back of his house. And he went to Washington with him and sort of introduced him to people that he had cultivated, you know, in the intelligence community. And that sort of became relevant when the Reagan administration decided to invade Grenada. And so he got a call from someone in the National Security Council staff saying, you got to call this guy Oliver North and you have to do what he says. He wants your help. Um, and Kevin was very excited. It was the first time anyone had really taken him that seriously. And North asked him to like do a series of tasks, essentially. Uh, what that, sort of tasks? So this this sort of requires a little bit of wind up. So I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm already <laughs> talking too much. But let me just briefly say, there were a bunch of American med students on Grenada. There was a med school there. And there were a lot of them there. And so one of the reasons for the invasion at least putatively, was to rescue them and to bring them home lest they become hostages. The hostage crisis in Tehran was still very fresh in everyone's mind. And so the fear that all, like 800 American kids would get held by the new 
communist regime in Grenada was very scary. And so one of the first things that Oliver North asked Katke to do was go and try to get essentially a formal statement from the med school, which by coincidence, I don't know. What a weird coincidence that the the headquarters of the med school is in Bayshore. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Where it was a short drive. lived. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it was a coincidence. That's why I stopped myself. Like, maybe it's, that was part of the reason why they called him. He's like, oh, yeah. we know a guy in Bayshore. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, so Katki and one of his friends went up to the administrative offices and, and tried to meet with a chancellor. And they're like, who are you? And they're like, no, no, we're with the White House. And the med school administrators sent them away because they had no reason to think they were for real. And then that was sort of the first task that, that Katki uh, took from, from Oliver North. Uh, and over the course of the next couple of weeks, he, he did a couple other things, mostly unsuccessfully. But he, you know, he was this freelancer. He was this independent contractor who North asked to, to do things that the government didn't want to necessarily do well, itself. Well, uh, let me, a couple of things. One, um, I mean, that's one of the things that it's this, I think, Iran-Contra has in common with so many of these uh, Washington scandals and, you know, the Ukraine scandal, which is that so often these are efforts to do things, you know, behind Congress's back. Off uh, the books. uh, The sort of, you know, off-the-shelf foreign policy. And when that happens, you go outside of the government and you end up with some of these unusual (laughs) characters. Right. You know, Lev Parnas is a name that comes to mind. Of course. Uh, But I think for our, you know, younger uh, listeners, put this in a little bit of a kind of geopolitical context, because this is still the heart of the Cold War, right? And so there is that Vietnam hangover you talked about, Mm -hmm. but also... I mean, the reason that Grenada was a target of the U.S. government was because of the fear of Soviet influence there and Grenada, of all places, being a beachhead. So explain that a little bit for our listeners. So there was a fear that you would see something like the domino effect in the Western Hemisphere, that you would see, starting with Cuba, communism expand to Nicaragua, as it did, and Grenada, and beyond that to Mexico and right up to to the America's borders. There was a real fear that the Soviet Union would use their alliances with these tiny countries to, like park airplanes there and to store weapons there. And And they were building an airstrip in Grenada. Indeed, yes. Yes. There was a big airstrip that Reagan talked about in a big speech where he said, look, they're constructing this this airfield with the help of Cuban, you know, advisors, military people. What's this airstrip for? You know, this is a long airstrip for what kind of plane would need this other than a, a Soviet reconnaissance plane? And... This sort of uh, they, so Reagan called it to me very memorably the Red Triangle of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Grenada, and they just they wanted to stop it. They wanted to thwart it however they could, and I think Grenada was part of that as was Nicaragua. So this leads over time to the Nicaragua part of the story, yep. and uh, there's a the communist revolution, the Sandinistas take over, you get the Contras, but then separately there's another kind of river, and that is Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, that's one of the unique features of this scandal is these, you know, these two rivers kind of merge uh, at a certain point. But start, tell us about the Iran piece of this and what's happening in that part of the narrative. Yeah. So, so Iran had been a, an ally of the United States when it was ruled by the Shah, who'd been installed or t- taken power with the help of the U.S. in, in, in the 50s. And in 1979, he was deposed. There was a revolution, and the new government was very anti-American. They led chants of death to America, which is now a very famous phrase, and Iran kind of became this black box and this threat. And there were people in the Reagan administration who thought that there was a possibility of 
not necessarily undoing the revolution, but at least cultivating relationships with people they believe to be moderates in the Iranian government, people who didn't want this extremely hostile relationship with the U.S., and people who could be counted on in a post-Khomeini world in the event that Khomeini died, sorry, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who was sort of the figurehead and, and the ruler in Iran, if he died or if he resigned or whatever, that we would have these relationships with these moderates who could kind of bring back Iran into the fold and make make Iran some kind of ally again. The way it sort of actually is quite inseparable from the Cold War narrative is that, for instance, Admiral John Poindexter, who was Reagan's national security advisor starting in the end of 1985, after Bud McFarlane, whom we heard earlier, resigned, Poindexter believed that the Soviet Union had its eye on a post-Khomeini Iran as well and was going to try to gain influence there. And so for him, cultivating these relationships with the moderates in Iran by way of weapon sales was a way to stave off the possibility of a Soviet... Because the, the Russians shared a border with yeah, Iran. Exactly. They'd invaded Afghanistan. Precisely. They were looking for a foothold in the Middle East. Yeah. But also, as I think you make clear, they never could actually quite identify any of these moderates right. in Iran. The so-called they, moderates. We they can... were sort of hoped for and, you know, that they existed, but they never actually could, you know, talk to any or, yeah. you know, even say who they were. Right. That's but, right. but then separately, or, I mean, during this time, you have the hostages, right. the phenomenon of the hostages being taken in Lebanon, yeah, so I which is said, the real driving force behind yeah. What, so when you so when happens you, later. So when you asked earlier about like the the context right. around Iran, I should have mentioned that after that 1979 revolution, this horrible thing happened where 52 Americans were taken prisoner in the uh, American embassy in Tehran, and that became like a defining storyline. I'm sorry to call it that in the Carter administration. Big reason why I think he was defeated by Reagan that he couldn't get these hostages back. In fact, they were released on the day of Reagan's inauguration. And so Reagan like, really didn't want to have another hostage problem. And then he did. Over the course of a few months, seven Americans were taken hostage in Lebanon by groups associated with Hezbollah, which had the backing of Iran. Actually, before we get there, can I, I, I have to ask this one question. Sure. Because one of the uh, sort of conspiracy streams out of Iran-Contra was the so-called October surprise that uh, the Reagan campaign arranged with the Iranians, sent the message, don't release the hostages until Reagan takes office. Don't do it on Carter's watch because that will help Carter get reelected. And I remember for years there were all these uh, sort of the speculation, conspiracy theories that there were secret deals to keep the hostages, hostages in Iran until Reagan's election. Did you look into that? And we don't get into that in the, in the podcast. It was just like too deep of a rabbit hole to dive into. And we sort of were pretty confident that we weren't going to figure out a definitive answer. Right. Uh, and All so right. we sort of yeah. walked, oh, yeah. ra- walked around it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. All so right. Anyway. What do you so, think? Yeah. Do, you think, do you think it's real? Uh, no. I mean, I, there was never any <laughs> anything a... definitive. But, you know, for uh, the conspiracy-minded folks who I hang out with and talk to all the time, this was <laughs> something um, of an obsession another for episode, many years. Um, very treasure. <laughs> yeah. But- so to pick up the Iran story, yeah. this is where I'm gonna I'm gonna make my big reveal. Okay. Who I worked for, you know, out out of college, um, my first kind of reporting job, a guy named Michael Ledeen, mm-hmm. right? And so Ledeen, in a real oh, sense, Ledeen. kind of got the ball rolling <laughs> on this Iran part of the story. So I, I my memory was there was a meeting in in Switzerland. There were uh, there was. Israeli arms dealers, CIA, uh, Mossad people, and a guy named Gorbanifar. Yep. But why don't you pick up the story there? 
Well, wait, well, you got to tell us about the hostages first. I mean, the hostages in 